Our political commentators are with us now, however. Uh, we are welcoming Gareth Hughes and Bridget Morton. Kia ora korua. Morena. Kia ora morena. Bridget is director with public and commercial law firm Franks and Ogilvy and a former senior ministerial advisor for the previous national-led government, still active, I think, in the National Party. Gareth Hughes is a former Green MP and now works for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Aotearoa. And I don't think you are a member of a current political party, as far as I know. That's correct. Thank you very much. Uh, look, obviously there's a lot happening um, for a new Prime Minister and we were going to be, and we still will, talk about cabinet reshuffles because that's going ahead. We're here in RNZ's news and uh, policy reshuffles or possibly more than a reshuffle but days into the job and he's full on into a major civil defence emergency um, this is a really interesting moment in that nexus between um, local government and central government and, and the relationships between and how would each of you none of us are in Tamaki Makoto, right but how would each of you comment on what unfolded on Friday night do you want to begin Bridget? Yeah, I think absolutely it was a failure and I think, you know, there's a lot of blame being put on Wayne Brown and I think that's probably justified. But ultimately, people in need don't distinguish between local government and central government. And so this was a real opportunity or actually a real need, I think, for Chris Hipkins to step up into that prime ministerial role. It was always going to be difficult, you know, coming off his predecessor who this is where she shone is in that immediate sort of aftermath of disaster. But I do think you look at that sort of a media conference on Sunday afternoon between, you know, with the Brain Brown and the three ministers, including the Prime Minister, was there. And if you didn't know that Chris Hipkins was the Prime Minister, you would have assumed he was just an emergency manager official. He was trying to get out of shot at the same time. Yeah, and instead of taking (laughs) command and actually saying, this is what we're doing, this is how we're helping people, he just let it crumble. And, you know, in the end, you know, the Deputy Mayor sort of finished the conference. I think that was just a real sign of a lack of leadership from Hipkins there. I think there's no doubt that there is been... I push from central government on the ground. They seem to be doing a lot of activity and trying to make up for their absence, but you're not getting that narrative from the Prime Minister that you would expect. Well, this was, I mean, Wayne Brown's first big test as the mayor, and I think it's fair to say, you know, he, he failed. It was a subpar performance by the mayor um, at a time when the city was looking to him for leadership, for, for reassurance, as a conduit for information. He was glaringly silent. It was so noisy, the silence. And the fact that when you look through forensically that timeline, actually the, the declaration wasn't even communicated until an hour after it was passed, I think is quite an indictment of the process and the fact that ministers had to go on Twitter to order their agencies to continue communicating was a really subpar performance. I think Hipkins did the right thing, you know, had that 2am press conference, flew to Auckland the next day, could have maybe had a bit sharper elbows in that press conference, but had of he continually interrupted Brown, which I saw the other way around, we would have been now talking about, you know, was he undermining was he undermining the Auckland response? Or a combative, you know, performance or, or something like that. Do you, do you think that was a judgment call, just to sort of stand back and say this, well, this is I mean, on you? Well, I mean, it obviously was a judgment call, but I don't think it was the right one. I do think people were looking for certainty and stability, and I think, you know, if you watch the conference as a whole, you're not getting that as a team approach. So yes, the combative thing, you know, we would have been talking about that, but I do think he actually has where you've got to stand up and go, actually, I'm the Prime Minister. This is actually what we're doing and this is how we're rolling it out. Because what it did was that led to this ongoing certainty. Well, actually, who's in charge? Who's doing what? There's still that confusion. If somebody had just said, actually, I'm in charge and led that, and that's a lot to do with how you present, what you say, all of that, I think there would be a lot more um, confidence in the response. 
Thomas Coughlin had an interesting piece sort of presenting the fact that the former Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, had sort of that uncanny knack of having the right people on the stage with her or dominating the, the press conferences. But it's, I mean, ridiculous to, to, to say in the response that Prime Minister Hipkins could have had a press conference separate from the Mayor of Auckland. I mean, again, I think that was unreasonable. Okay. Look, let's look at these wider implications, the political and fiscal implications of these ever more frequent and ongoing weather disasters. And the thing about this one, we've had widespread flooding in this country before, but often it will be over farmland or regional land. To have it so widespread across our most populated city, north, south, east, west, and the allied regions, um, Northlands, um, Coromandel, and Bay of Plenty, and northern Waikato, the scale of it the intensity of it. But we are getting evidence that these events, the scale of them, the length of them, the damage of them are are recurring. Um, Coromandel's been hit goodness knows how many times. East Cape's been hit goodness how many times. West Coast, Ashburton. What What are the implications for the infrastructure and the financing and the fiscal implications of this reality? Well, it's it's, it's a huge challenge for the country going forward. I mean, some parties have been talking about this stuff for for decades, as we know. But look, this is probably going to be our most costly flood event. Premiums will go up. Uh, We we know with climate change that every sort of one degree of temperature rise, which we've already seen in the last uh, century, brings about another 7% of moisture to the air. And we've seen previous weather events in New Zealand 10 to 15% worse. And that's only going to continue. So our infrastructure in many respects was built 50 years ago for the conditions 50 years ago. We've now got a plan for the future conditions in maybe 100 years. So heartbreaking hearing those Aucklanders who talked about they thought they were okay because it was a once in a 100 year flood event two years ago. And they've had it again two years later. So we need to plan for it. The only thing I can think about is that originally when our EQC scheme was set up, that was originally for bomb damage during the Second World War and it was repurposed to earthquake damage as well. I think we maybe have to look something similar. A a large fund that's added to over multiple years for uh, climate adaptation and emergencies. But anyone paying their insurance bill at the moment is watching that EQC component going up and up and of course the private insurers getting hit repeatedly, uh, borrowing offshore from the reinsurers, so those costs are going to keep climbing as well. But it's the big infrastructure, it's bridges and roads, entire roads. You know, State Highway 6 and the um, nelson Melbourne event is, is, is a key transport route between North and South Island um, for those heading off to Nelson. And now we've seen that similar level of devastation in Coromandel. I mean, our our governments, and I haven't buried deep enough into the recent budgets, planning for the scale of ongoing costs that's going to hit the consolidated fund. I don't think they are, and I think it's absolutely right that we have got an infrastructure deficit where we haven't kept up with what we need. And, you know, it's interesting over summer, you know, you sort of saw that sort of pothole kind of campaign run out from National, really talking about what our, the state our roads were, and it was causing, you know, damage to cars. It was quite serious. But actually, when you look at that, the condition of those roads, we now see those same roads now falling down the side of cliffs. There's no doubt that whilst it was sort of, a political point to say look at the state of the roads when you're trying to drive over them is now a very serious fiscal problem that the government can't ignore. They ignore the potholes, they couldn't ignore this. And I think, you know, we've really got to look at what we're actually doing 
it's not popular in many ways to invest in the roads. You know, it has become, you know, if you invest in a road, that means you don't care about climate change. But obviously, they have to yeah. go hand in hand. That backfired somewhat when the AA fingered National when they brought in the roads, expanded the roads of national significance and diverted, according to the AA, a whole bunch of maintenance funding to pay for those. So, you know, um, that one's going to have two sides to the coin. But I think you're right. This is this has just moved beyond um, the annoyances people have on their local roads. But again, coming back to it, we're not even talking about every few years, Gareth. We're talking every year, multiple times a year. We are seeing these major events. And what's kind of an avoid now is whether there is an infrastructure plan that directly addresses it and not in the rearview mirror. And our larger city is going to struggle financially with it, let alone smaller you know, regional councils or district councils. Uh, the fact is this low rates, low tax, low investment infrastructure approach is, is biting us now, and we're going to have to significantly invest. I mean, this is going to be an argument for why the government's approaching the three waters. Uh, when it comes to stormwater, which is one of the three, there was the billion dollars for the Climate Emergency Response Fund. Maybe more of that should now be going towards adaptation. A lot of that's going to mitigation, trying to reduce emissions. Uh, but, yeah, the, the government's going to have to come to the party. And given we've got the second uh, most centralised uh, government in the OECD in terms of tax revenue, you know, our, our local councils just don't have the revenue. The government's got to come to the party. We're going to get on to the cabinet reshuffle, but let's stay with Three Waters because Kieran McAnulty sort of tippy-toed towards it and tippy-toed away from it this morning when I was interviewing viewing him. Bridget, I talked about the state of Auckland infrastructure. We've heard from plenty of residents saying um, it couldn't handle this. I did hear from one local councillor saying nothing we'd done would have handled this. But does this open further risk or further opportunity for the government over Three Waters and however it might be about to reshape or repackage that, declare interest and then, and then answer the question. Yeah, absolutely. And I have got an interest that I've got multiple clients involved in this space. But I think in terms of Three Waters, one, the narrative is so far down the track um, that the government is going to have a lot of trouble trying to rescue, you know, that Three Waters is the answer. It has just grown out to be this sort of bureaucratic, it's about co-governance, it's all about all these other things. It's very little to do with water now. I think they will try and reshape in regards to the stormwater, but there's nothing in Three Waters that indicates that what they would, the new entities will do would get us to a standard where we would not have had any impact or minimal impact from the rain event over the weekend that is ongoing. So I think we need to be really careful, and the government has to be really careful, they're not setting expectations that suddenly everyone's going to have these gold-plated pipes, particularly because someone's still got to pay for them. It's still ratepayers, it's still taxpayers. So for them, you know, whilst yes, we could have better stormwater, Water, three Waters is not the answer in terms of the narrative. They can't. They haven't coupled what happened on the weekend with actually the answer coming from the Three Waters entities. And will they be weighing up whether and how to do that, Gareth? Yeah, well, it's too soon, I think, to dive into politics. And Mayor Brown, when he talked about houses shouldn't have been there, it's tone deaf and, I think, frankly, a bit offensive to those people. Though it's a, a real question we've got to face. I think the government can't really back down from the substance of Three Waters. We might see some tweaks around the governance regime, but this is an advertisement for, for why it was needed. We haven't invested in the right infrastructure in the right place to, to cope with these once-in-a-hundred-year storms which are hitting us. And for me, I mean, it was a stark image, that photograph of a national billboard saying National will repeal Three Waters almost underwater, um, highlighting exactly why it was needed. Yeah. Okay. Let's just sidestep now into the um, the politics we thought we were going to be focusing on today and these things aren't unrelated because it is to do with some significant policies that um, have uh, proved unpopular along with other things and impacted Labour's polling 
But let's have a look at what we're hearing the Prime Minister will still proceed with uh, this week, and I think as early as tomorrow, are we expecting, which is the Cabinet reshuffle. These can either be beltway events and no one else really knows what's happening, or they can be, you know, a, a moment of importance or substance. How are you reading it, Bridget? I think basically what will resonate is taking particular ministers off particular portfolios who are sort of coupled with particular policies. I mean, we're just talking about Three Waters, Nanaima Huta. Um, I think that has to be broken apart, you know, that relationship, particularly because there is now significant mistrust between the local government sector and their current minister because of how Three Waters has run out. And they've got to do the local government review when there's a lot of discussions about fixing local government. I think for them to actually make progress in that area, that she is not the best person to lead that work. Similarly I think you've got Willie Jackson has not been able to make the case on the TVNZ, RNZ merger so if they decide to proceed with that in any form they think they've got to probably move him away from that portfolio. I think then in terms of where you're putting people it's not really going to resonate that far unless they can make a real difference. So obviously it looks like we're still going to have the same Minister of Finance Grant Robinson so you know that doesn't that means you know not significant things are going to change and then there's some key um you know, things that looks like Jantony is probably going to pick up education minister. Andrew Little probably going to stay in the health portfolio. So you're not really going to see a lot of change there in terms of that sort of continuity. So I think absolutely you're right that it, mostly this discussion is probably going to stay in the Beltway. It's really going to be, I think, probably how you see them perform in the House in the next couple of weeks and then what they come up with at budget. When, when it makes a difference is when someone who is a struggling minister is replaced by someone who's a very good minister and a situation gets turned around or, or, or vice versa. Do you see the potential for that, Gavin? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's Gavin? Gareth. You really reshuffled already. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I agree. And I think there are three things. There's a practical problem, which was Hipkins was Mr. Fix-It. He's got some heavy-hitting portfolios that someone else has got to step up to make sure they're not continuing problems. There's resetting that Labour brand uh, and then refreshing the team and making sure the party's set for the election and a third term of government. And when you look at history, I mean, I think Clark left it too late in her term to refresh her team. Uh, Key did it better. It was this almost ruthless reshuffling of some of the ministers. So I think it's pretty clear, you know, the changes, and I agree with what Bridget was explaining. But it's like that new blood he's going to bring in. What's he going to do with some of the old timers, the Damien O'Connors, the David Parkers, who are performing, but are they the Labour's future and who will they bring in? So some of the people, you know, traditionally you elevate the chief whip or maybe the chair of the Finance and Expenditure Committee. So I'd expect Duncan Webb, um, De- uh, Deborah Russell, then you've got maybe Barbara Edmonds, Tangiuta Kiri, Arena. Williams, Rachel Brooking, they do have some talent that they can really elevate. They do. Education and police is interesting. You're talking about uh, Hipkins' roles uh, because the polytechnic sector certainly has been a, an absolute albatross, uh, a political albatross around his neck and, and more than that for those who are caught up in what seems to be an almost unresolvable situation. Police obviously remains a very sensitive um, portfolio as well. So do we have a sense that there's anyone just, you, you could go safe with someone like Stuart Nash um, or you could look for someone who is going to be able to front those hard questions in the heat of an election campaign. I've got no information who it could be, but to my mind, it would be quite smart to maybe put Andrew Little in that portfolio. Going to election year, he's got quite a contentious relationship with the nurses. You know, he should be maybe 
having those big fights and sort of that, that um, his natural aggression, for want of a better term, against criminals. Uh, and you've got a very sort of capable uh, 2IC and Aisha Vero who could step up into that role. So I wonder you if... Couldn't, you couldn't have your minister leave halfway through a reform, could you? Yeah, and I think Aisha Vero, I think, I think she doesn't have those great relationships with the sector yet either. It's been quite contentious in terms of, you know, what she has sort of pushed through. So I think it's probably a bit early for her to be stepping up into, yeah. into the middle of reforms as well. They need... They need some reforms to be completed, right? And they need they need some delivery on that front. And and this is why Three Waters is interesting because most of the legislative program is through. Yeah, but the legislation is the easy part. Yeah. And actually, the legis- most of the legislation is not through. I keep going back to the fact that you know they push two bills in. One of them is two hundred pages worth of amendments to the primary legislation okay. they got through. It's not okay. at all. So the question done. is, what do you target to complete, and what do you drop? So let's finish with that. Well, I think the strategists probably have a big whiteboard matrix on the wall around the cost, the delivery timeframes, the popularity isn't an attack. So I think broadcasting merger is one of those issues where you can sort of put a lot of ticks in those boxes with a bit of rationale why you want to cancel it. Employment insurance is another, particularly in a cost of living crisis, this sort of $3 billion per year price tag which has to be shared around. Um, that's one which, you know, you might want to defer or delay. Likewise with RMA, there's only 57 legislative sitting days left. A whole bunch of other business has to happen during those days, it's going to be a real race against the clock to even pass that before the end of the year. So perhaps um, delay that as well. I think what, I agree with pretty much all of that. I think what is key, though, is actually what they're going to focus on. You know, they can push these things to the side, but in terms of completion, things that are going to be on the billboards for the election, they're going to have to say things that are going to address the specialist waiting times and health, things that are going to address literacy and numeracy in our compulsory education sector, those type of things that are really hitting on the ground, along with there's no doubt we're going to see some sort of tax passage, and they're going to have to do something, I think, more than what they think at the moment around that public transport fuel subsidy space. Yes, that's due to come off around now, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Let's um, have a look then at how you feel Chris Hipkins has started. We're waiting for the cabinet reshuffle. We've already discussed this uh, curveball thrown very early, which is this horrendous event, uh, weather events and its consequences. What he did do before that was head to Tamaki Makaro, Auckland, and uh, get himself very close, <laughs> up close and personal with a, with, a, with a business audience and sort of pitching and, 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 and rebranding, which is a key part of his um, obvious role in taking over. Difficult this many days on to assess, but is, is he playing in the right space? Yeah, I think he absolutely made the right moves going towards that business community to start with. I think that was a key sort of rebranding from him. I mean, we're going to see tonight we've got a double poll. Both the News Hub and TVNZ have both got polls that have been running over the latter part of last week. If I was to make a prediction, it's always dangerous to make a prediction about polls, I don't think they'll see a massive bump for him because whilst he was the sort of Mr Fix-It and the COVID response, a large part of that was still behind the scenes. A lot of people don't know who Chris Hipkins is. It's a little bit like Chris Luxon. You know, it was a bit of a slow rise. Actually, what have you got? I think it'll really... he If he's going to have any movement in the polls, it's going to come in the next couple of weeks as these sort of policy changes and reshuffles and all of that kind of rolls out. I mean, I'm definitely expecting a bit of a bump in the poll. I think the the voters really um, reward competence. And what we saw with that transition of power was almost this flawless dream sort of process from Labour's perspective. We now know that those conversations started in December. December, So we were quite surprised. Far too ready to go for that to have been a surprise to Hipkins, uh, let alone Robertson. Obviously, it wasn't to Ardern. So obviously, those conversations had happened in December. But what was strategically so savvy was I'm not sure how much wider those conversations went. 
And so people who may have organised and wanted to put out an alternative simply did not have the time to, right? Yeah, that's right. And they'll be rewarded for that sort of internal discipline, that sort of good political management, uh, which hasn't always been expressed with the Labour Party or, or other parties as well. And reaching out to business, I thought, was savvy. You know, it, send, it builds bridges with businesses, particularly when we've got the lowest business confidence ratings in 50 years. It does send a very core message that the economy is first and foremost for Labour. So I think a, a pretty good turnout. And it'll be interesting to see where he lands with that preferred Prime Minister ranking. That's, I think, what I'll be really looking out for. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with all of that. I think in terms of the sort of, you know, a lot was being put on that sort of business community being the first meeting, and it was a very close and personal meeting, but there were some really key things in there that they asked of him, you know, around immigration, slowing down the RMA reforms, etc. <clears throat> and so really, I think he's got to make some key commitments around there. Immigration has been, I think, a complete and utter mess under this government. You know, they closed borders, but they also, you know, were making massive changes or massive promises about making changes in immigration to reset it to the skills that we need and that just hasn't happened and that's going to be really felt by a lot of people with skill shortages. From Labour's perspective, and we'll come back to National in a moment, but all the, obviously all the running has happened when you change your leader and the Prime Minister. Um, you hog headlines for a little while, OK? Um, so from their perspective, is another who, who are the voters they need to lure back or to contest in order to close the gap on what has been multipole now, a fairly solid National Act government. And what might need to go? I saw some uh, speculation in one of the commentaries about Eheka um, Wakanoa and um, obviously the um, changes that were made to what the farming, well, more than the farming, to what that um, working group had put together seemed to sort of tip that fine balance. Are they going to go there, Gareth? Are they going to go, okay, right now, in the circumstance we are in right now, we don't need to push on further with this at the moment? I don't know whether that's suddenly going to bring them a rush of the perhaps one-off farmer votes they had in parts of the country in, in 2020. But but who, which votes are in play and which policies therefore are in play? Yeah, I don't think any of those sort of that groundswell votes are going to ever road to Damascus moment and, and go to Labour if they ditch Te Waka Ekanoa. In fact, I think they've got a problem on the other side that their base isn't particularly enthused because they've been seen yeah, but, to back down but at is agriculture. Their base, this is the age-old argument. This is what I'm getting to. Do you count on your base because they've got nowhere else to go except perhaps the Greens and bolster that, that side of a potential coalition government? Or do you um, fight in the middle, which may mean more darlings being murdered? Well, I think you need to make sure your base is there and they can't take it for granted. But where that sort of room for growth is, I think in suburban centres, it's your provincial centres, that's why the, I think the tax change, and we're sort of seeing speculation that there could be a uh, an increase in tax on the wealthy, maybe a, even a $3 million capital gains tax or something similar, really targeting the ultra-wealthy, so you can deliver something to those middle-income voters. And I think that's where they'll be pitching for. Do you see the CGT coming back on? It's been third rail for you know, government after government after government. Do you see the change away from the Prime Minister who said, not on my watch, seeing that come back on in any way, shape or form? I think it's going to be really difficult for them to make the argument on that one. And it'll, it'll look like another set of reforms, which is exactly what they're trying to take off their you know page at the moment. I think just turning back to that sort of farmer and provincial vote, it what we to know, I think, is the sort of the headline of what's sort of happening in our rural sectors. But actually, there's been an avalanche of policy statements and guidelines and a lot of stuff that's been happening against our rural sector and in a challenging market, you know, in terms of COVID. So I think it wouldn't be enough for them to sort of push back on something at that headline. I think it's quite entrenched that feeling, that ill feeling right. in our rural and So why would you chase those votes? 
And that comes back to the question of what are the votes in play that they will be chasing? Well, they've got an interesting thing here where they've got this massive caucus. They won a lot of regional um, and provincial seats in 2020. So you've got a lot of MPs that are going to be desperate for Labour to have some policies that appeal to that voter. Also, I understand sort of from polling that Labour has really, you know, in terms of the urban centres like Auckland, they're really struggling there. So you've really got to think about, well, where are we directing our policies? I think there's going to see a, a swing of a number of those regional seats come back um, to national because national has been running a consistent message of speaking to those provinces, whereas Labour has not. And you can see that in where both parties picked to have their in, beginning of the year it's caucus Napier. meetings mm-hmm. in Napier. Yeah. So it's your Gisborne's, your Napiers, are those mid-sized provincial towns. Yeah, right around the map, in fact. Interesting uh, stuff. Thank you very much, both of you, Bridget Morton and Gareth Hughes.